This is Ian Harvey. I'm the Tokyo US brand manager, and I've got Erica Flowers um, here with me to do an interview. I think this will be very interesting. Erica is an elite ski racer, skied for many years on an elite level for the Stratton team, retired, but since then has maintained her very elite level of performance and results while working full time. Um, she's had many World Cup starts and many top domestic finishes. For example, last winter, third in the 2020 Berkey and third, top three in numerous super tours, fifth and sixth in US nationals. As a retired ski racer, that's amazing, of course. Erica is married to Andy Newell. And there are some aspects of her life that I think that everyone will find very interesting, especially how she balances work with training and racing and travel, as well as some of the improvements that to me, she seemed to have made since retiring. So Erica, my first question is, when did you grow up and how did you start ski racing? Yeah, thanks Ian. Um, so I grew up in, in Bozeman, Montana. Um, and I, I guess I was born in Missoula, Montana, which is about three hours from here, but moved to Bozeman when I was 10. Um, I was big into theater as a child. And so when I moved to Bozeman, I, I had left that behind and my parents wanted me to make some friends and get involved in the community here. So they signed me up for the ski team, um, the Bridger Ski Foundation. And so I started skiing with them just as a way to meet kids my age and kind of get more involved in the Bozeman community and um, kind of skied with that program all the way through, through college. So how old were you when your parents signed you up for that program? I think I was maybe had just turned 11. Hmm, cool. And you, you um, I'm just curious, you always were on board with that. I know since I've known you, you've loved ski racing and skiing and you always have this big smile on your face, but was there ever a period where you didn't feel like it was yours or you were reluctant to commit? Yeah, that's a good question. So I would say it's always been something I really really loved. Um, I grew up doing a lot of different sports. I think I realized in, in high school, the only reason I made the soccer team was because I could just run the whole game. Um, but it was something that, like, I think my parents signed me up because they're like, oh, maybe she'll like this. And I think I, I just fell in love with it. And it was not even the skiing so much as the people that I was doing it with. And I think that that's something that holds true even today. I think the people are just phenomenal. And I think that's what's kept me in this sport and kept me coming back to it. Um, are just the people you get to, to be around. Um, so I think that's been a big part of it. But I remember even in, I think it was in seventh grade, a couple of my friends who were on the team had made US or made junior nationals for the first time and I hadn't made it that year. And so I like wrote my first little training plan, which was, I mean, including things like stretching for 15 minutes and like running around the block three times and, and like silly stuff like that. But it was definitely something I was like very motivated to, to do myself. Just a side note before we continue, when I was early days in high school, I did my own quote unquote training plan. I did a time trial every day for a month once. Oh my gosh. I wasn't trying stuff. I just didn't know any better. And I thought, you know, so yeah. that's where I was at. Nice. So, I like <laughs> Yeah. So I've, I know a lot of people, uh, you know, skiers and whatnot. And I was thinking about this when I was preparing for this. You've skied for BSF, you know, a really great established program from youth all the way up through elite. You skied for Dartmouth, obviously a story program with great support and coaching. You skied after that for Stratton uh, elite team. And, and now, although you've retired, but you happen to be married to one of the world's best coaches, in my opinion. <laughs> um, 
you've had some of the best coaches and trained with some of the most successful skiers in the country, especially while on the Stratton team. I know you have had and continue to have had many strong relationships with old t uh, teammates. Um, is there a teammate? Well, first, your thoughts on maybe winning the lottery in terms of uh, the teams and coaching and teammates and support that you've had through, through your ski career? Because it's pretty unique, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think I've, I've, you're right in that I've been very lucky. Um, you know, I for was fortunate to, to start skiing in Bozeman, which has an incredible program here. Um, there were, uh, Christina Trickstad had gone to Dartmouth. And so I, I kind of heard of Dartmouth through her um, and found myself on that team. And that was at a time where, you know, they continued to be a strong program. But, you know, Rosie Brennan was on that team. Ida Sargent was on that team. Hannah Dreisgacker, Susan Duckley had just left that team. So, and Sophie was my teammate coming in. So um, was kind of, yeah, won the lottery as far as teams go on that front. Um, and then and then went to Stratton. I think it's easy to forget though that when, when Soap and I went to Stratton, it was just Soap and I. So it was her I, um, Andy and Skyler. Um, and then, you know, shortly after Jesse joined, shortly after kind of Eric Packer and a few others. But I think one thing that I found is just, and as I mentioned, like the people have been, always been kind of the one of the most important pieces of skiing for me. And I think always looking for for places where uh, the people were were kind, um, but also very motivated and, and hungry to improve and get better, um, not just as individuals, but kind of working as a unit and as a team to do that. Yeah. I have to think that it's helped foster enjoyment of skiing in general as a lifetime sport, as well as for competition and for training, having had such a, had such a, such a positive and nurturing environment, as well as sharp and the tip of the sword kind of an environment you know yeah I, I completely agree it's and I think it's it's not always easy to do in an individual quote individual sport like skiing but I think um the times that I've been most successful is in sport and in skiing is when I'm kind of working with others who are who are similarly motivated similarly minded but but are the first to kind of offer support and help when you need it cool um is there have you had a teammate I know this is probably a difficult question but uh, do you want to highlight someone that has been in particularly inspiring to you as a teammate yeah that, so I've been thinking about that question a little bit and it's hard to to pinpoint just one because I think people inspire me in in different ways like obviously Jesse is someone who I look up to as do many people um, but it's not necessarily because she's you know won a gold medal or is super fast I think she she's just someone who really she works hard and it's not always pretty and she makes mistakes along the way, but she's, you know, she's the, she's always the one out there kind of getting the work done and, and putting the time in. Um, and, and I think that to me is, is really ins inspiring. I think it, you know, she, she's talented obviously, but it's easy to just fall back on talent and not also put the work in. And I think the reason she's been as successful as she is, is not just because she's talented, but because she works her butt off. So that she's certainly inspiring to me. And then I think Sophie likewise is, is inspiring, but for totally different reasons. Not that she doesn't work hard, but, but Sophie has this amazing ability to put things in perspective. And I think for me as a skier, that's been hugely important. I think I, I gravitate more towards the, just naturally more towards the, you know, more work means better results means faster. And I think Sophie does a good job of recognizing that 
it's not as simple as that. And you have to have that balance and, and be able to find joy in the whole process and, and be able to kind of have a life outside of skiing. Um, and I think that for me, particularly now has been really helpful. And so, you know, I think her ability to balance those two things, to be a great skier, to be a great friend, to be a great sister, to be a great teammate, um, are, are equally inspiring. You mentioned Jessie and her work ethic and how that's inspired you. This, this podcast is about you and with you, but you brought her up. So one thing that I've also noticed about Jessie is I think more than anybody else in the Nordic community that I know of, she is excellent and very dedicated at controlling her environment and the perspective. She's not, she doesn't let anyone box her in the corner with expectations, with, with setting the standards for her. She doesn't let someone else define what sport is for her um, and let her put pressure on herself that she wouldn't want to put on herself anyway. Of course, she does that anyway. Um, I think that's a, a remarkable skill, which enables her to keep things fun and, mm -hmm. and hers. I yeah. Think a really important skill. Yeah, I completely agree. So you've retired. Since retiring, <laughs> you've been extremely successful. Um, I've got a few questions about that. But can you talk about that just uh, from a macro level? Please? Yeah. So to be fair, I don't think I ever officially retired. I decided to take a step back from full-time racing. I got to a point both age-wise and results-wise where it, it kind of fundamentally didn't make sense for me to be ski racing full-time. And, and that was hard. Like, I don't want to pretend like that was an easy decision or, or something that I took lately. I think the first few months after kind of deciding I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to be on the Stratton team anymore. I was going to do that full-time, like kind of sucked. <laughs> um, but I knew that I didn't want to just like hang up the skis. I think some people leave skiing and they're, they're burnt out. They're over it. They don't want to do it anymore. And I didn't leave skiing for those reasons. I, I left because I wasn't achieving the results I needed to be at that age to, to make a living doing it. Um, and while I, I loved it, I also had some other things that I wanted to kind of start pursuing. So, you know, I was interested in, in using my brain in different ways and, um, kind of exploring the world of work a bit more. I wanted to build a house, <laughs> have kind of a, a more settled home with Andy. I think life on the road is, is really fun and kind of the dream job, but um, it doesn't come without, you know, some challenges as well. So that was kind of the reason for, for taking a step back and deciding to kind of pursue other goals. But, um, you know, my first year after, you know, quote, retiring, uh, I jumped in a couple of races because I love it. And that had never changed for me. I had never stopped loving racing and um, to be able to, to still do that and, and work full time has just been a gift. And I think it's made me appreciate skiing that much more um, because I realize I, I don't get to do it every day, all day, like I did for many years, um, which can sometimes become a grind. Um, but now when I get to ski, it's like, it's such a privilege. Like I'm so lucky to be out here doing this right now. So, so I think in, in retirement and I'm, I'm fortunate to have a company that I work for, um, profitable ideas exchange that is supportive of that. They're kind of encouraging of living full lives. And so, um, I've been able to, to work with them to, to still be able to race and, and train, although that certainly looks different than how it may have before. So I've noticed what you just said. I've noticed that I've actually, not that you weren't living the dream. Like I couldn't, not that I couldn't tell that you were living the dream when you were with Stratton, for example, but 
I would say for the most part at every event in every training camp and everywhere I run into you, which is pretty common, um, you're the, pretty much the happiest person in the room, <laughs> genuinely. And, um, and I think I fit that category too, and I gravitate to it. Um, I can see your enjoyment level where you said it's, it's just, a, a, I don't know what you said, an opportunity or a privilege or a blessing to, to just be out there and, yeah. and to be able to do what you're doing. I see that. And I also see the joy in what you're doing, maybe affecting, positively affecting your results and your focus and your, you know, you're living in the moment. You know what I mean? Yeah. When you're out there, you're, you're there and you're loving every minute of it, you know? Yeah. And focused I, on it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that's how I feel. And like great results are always fun, but I think what I've realized is I'm happy just to be out there skiing. Like awesome. the alternative is that, you know, I'm in the office and I love what I do, but like there's something pretty magical about being out on a ski trail and just like going as absolutely hard as you can. And I think it's not that I didn't appreciate that while I was doing it full time, but I've just come to so much more when, when I, when I don't get to do it all day, every day. So this isn't something that I, I was going to say, but, it seems like it's a, it's what you've achieved. I think you've achieving balance. So when you're a full-time athlete, it's very difficult to have that feeling of joy consistently because you don't have balance in your life where you've got your family life, you've got your work life, which is obviously fulfilling and also demanding. And then now you've also got your athletic life and outdoor lifestyle. And that's now in balance as compared to being 90% or whatever. And, and I think that enables you to enjoy it that much more as an athlete and then you know as one third of whatever is the whole big picture what, what do you think about that yeah I think I think that's right and I don't think that you know as you mentioned that however that breakdown is is going to change depending on kind of the phase of your life and um like I don't think I would be doing this right now had I not spent you know, six years racing full time. So it, I think it's like, it's not as simple as just being like, oh, you need to be doing all these things. And, and that's how you can be successful in all of them. But I think for me, especially at this stage in my life, that's been um, kind of what I needed, especially in, in terms of skiing and that sort of thing to have a little bit more of that, that balance where I wasn't just thinking and, and focused on, on racing all the time. I think it's easy to kind of put the blinders on and you know, work really hard and get after it every day. But um, for me, kind of being able to take my head up and, and have some kind of perspective and interest in other areas and, and time spent doing other things than skiing has, has, as you mentioned, kind of given a balance that has ultimately allowed kind of me to still be successful in, in skiing, um, but just in a different way. So you just made a really important point. And I think if someone heard what I just said, either out of context or without me clarifying it, they could misunderstood, misunderstand what I just said or meant to say. And that is, I think that you've achieved balance and it's probably a, been a really good thing in your life as well as your enjoyment for skiing and maybe even for your performances. But I think that's only possible later on in a person's career. You put in tons of hard work for years and years and years at Dartmouth and at Stratton and so on to get to the point where you can put less in the ski basket and benefit from it, you know, but if you right. were to do that when you're 18, I mean, that's ridiculous to suggest that having balance when you're that young and not, you know, really committing is, is the way to go. That's not at all what I was suggesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it just looks different. Like, and I think 
like as I mentioned, Sophie and Jesse, I think are are kind of good examples in that way. Like the way they train is not the exact same, but they've found kind of what works well for them and what allows them ultimately to be happy at the end of every day. And I think, you know, I'm not the first to say kind of being a happy skier is generally a fast one. And and so I think more than than trying to like mimic someone else's balance, it's like finding what that balance is for you kind of at that stage in your life. And, and that's going to be different for every athlete and every person. But I think that for me got a little probably out of whack in the last few years I was skiing. Not that I wasn't still improving, but I think in these past few years, it's kind of come back in a way that's been um, a better fit for me. Yeah. Sounds great. Um, so here's a very, a question I'd like to get into a little bit. And that is how is your training how have you adapted your training and how's your training changed since having a, a, um, a job that is structured and, you know, has, you may have to commit to your job and such. It's, it's a, it's a different situation, obviously, than Stratton. Um, I'd love to hear how you've adapted to that. Yeah, it's a good question. So I'd say my training happens a lot earlier in the morning <laughs> um, and later in the afternoon. I, I work in a job that's East Coast hours. So we're, we're generally kind of seven to four. Um, sometimes out earlier, just depending on the day, but, but most of, you know, my training takes place before seven in the morning or, or in the afternoon. So that the schedule is definitely different. Um, and I also think it's less structured in some ways. Um, you know, there are days when I just get stuck at the office and I might've planned to go out for an hour and a half roller ski and that just doesn't happen. And that's okay. Um, I think I've, I've kind of given myself the the space to be a bit more flexible in that way. Um, but I think it still like involves some hard training. Like I definitely still do intervals. Um, I think because I've been running a bit more now, um, my summers involve a lot more running than they used to. Um, and then kind of transitioning more to, to roller ski specific, ski specific training in the fall. So just kind of getting into that now. Um, but I'd say in general, it's, it's, kind of a, a, a pullback on, on kind of total hours of training and a more focus on like getting quality sessions. And so it's rare that I'm able to get in like a two hour roller ski after work. Um, but it is possible for me to do kind of an hour 15 workout with, you know, some threshold intervals mixed in there and, and, and just less of the, I don't want to call it fluff, but less of the um, kind of easy skiing on the side of it that, that maybe I used to do a lot more of um, from a volume perspective. So I, yeah, just more focused sessions. I think re recognizing like, okay, each week, if I can get, you know, three quality sessions in like, and maybe two strength sessions, like that's a good week. And I think I've just kind of reset my expectations to, to meet that as opposed to being like, okay, I need to get like 13 great sessions. in. it's like, nope, I need three really good sessions, two strengths and everything else is just bonus. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the, the master skier recipe, the master yeah. <laughs> way, of, way of managing that all. So in terms of prioritizing your training, do you have a more or less a magic bullet workout? Kind of a, um, a workout that if you do that one workout well and you prioritize that workout, you know you're gonna be headed in the right direction. Yeah, so, so that's a good question. And I, I think I'll, I'll share one that I really like, but I think the one thing that I've found kind of in the last two years that I've enjoyed is, um, well, for the first time I've kind of written my own training plans or kind of crafted my own training. And it's allowed me to be a little bit more creative and trying things that, you know, when someone else was kind of crafting or helping me guide training, um, I, I wasn't as creative in, or, you know, you just, someone says you do this and that's what you do that day. Um, 
So it's been fun to kind of play around with other stuff. I'd say the one workout that I really enjoyed in particular last year and kind of leading up to, to races and, you know, it wasn't something at the beginning of the season I was necessarily doing, but kind of throughout the year working up to was anywhere from uh, four to six by about five minutes. Um, and, and kind of those first four and a half minutes would be pretty hard, like L4 kind of fast race pace, um, 5k race pace. Um, and then the last 30 seconds, like an all out sprint. And I think if I could get like six of those in, so kind of 30 minutes of a pretty hard intensity with, you know, at high level top end race pace, finishing fast each time, that was like a, a money workout. So it didn't know it doesn't always feel good, but I think I've also gotten more gracious with myself and recognizing that, you know, not every workout's going to feel awesome. Some days you might just be having an off day, but you kind of, you do that. So that way on race day, you, you feel good. And just being able to, to still get something out of the days that don't feel awesome. Um, yeah. has, I think been helpful. So I'm, I'm thrilled that you just said that workout. My magic bullet workout used to be 10 by three minutes. And I used to do them running with poles, like bounding and whatever. And then when I get on snow, I do it skiing and I do it roller skiing sometimes. But um, I found in the last, I would say 20 years, for some of those first 20 years, I didn't realize it, that workout made me worse. Hmm. Back when I was younger and fitter, I handled it and it, it, it was really good for me. But I would say it was more of a fitness workout that if I did too hard, I might have some repercussions, but it mm -hmm. wasn't a sharpening or a race prep workout. And I used it for that incorrectly. And this last, this last while, I've noticed that I do much better if I do something like four by five minutes or four by four minutes even. Mm -hmm. And I've been coaching Pearl, and I've noticed the same thing, keeping the interval workout short and concise and, um, and making sure that the last minute, let's say, is really high quality. Yep. Yeah. So that's really interesting that, that you mentioned that as your quote-unquote magic bullet workout because that's what I'm finding. Yeah. And that's for Pearl being 19. And for me being 52, you know, so yeah. that's quite interesting. That's funny. The reality is that I think as far as a magic bullet, what I found is just paying attention to kind of racing and, and how you're feeling at different parts of a course on different terrain. So like a specific example that comes to mind is last year in the early season races. I mean, honestly, the early part of my season last year, the first two races were quite terrible. <laughs> um, but I think kind of beyond that, you know, I noticed that I was skiing well, I felt pretty fit, but I was not kind of, I was getting dropped on the, the double pull flatter sections, which if you know me as a skier, that's not necessarily new, but I think I was kind of just frustrated with that. I was like, I, I can, I'm fit enough. I just don't have the turnover, the, the muscle capacity or what have you to keep up on some of these like flatter sections efficiently. And so it was like the next week I was like, okay, I'm just going to do double pull only intervals. And that's not a magic bullet. It's not crazy, but I think having the confidence to, you know, I might've had a different workout plan for that week, but recognizing that, Hey, I need to work on this like now. And, and then going, I think the next weekend we were at Craftsbury and I won the classic sprint qualifier, which I've never won a classic sprint qualifier. And a lot of it was double pulling. And I think it was, you know, picking terrain. I knew that that course had a lot of kind of gradual grindy double pull uphill and that hadn't been my strength during the year. And so I, kind of in the lead up to that, picking workouts that reflected that terrain and we're gonna help with that. Um, I just found very helpful and it was really satisfying to, to be able to do that. And 
be kind of more specific and, and particular about, okay, this is exactly what I want to work on. And so I think as far as magic bullet workouts, like giving yourself the, I mean, myself anyways, the flexibility to kind of change whatever I had planned in order to kind of focus on the, the specific goal or, or task or skill that I, I need to actually work on at the moment. So what I'm, and I, I, that's fascinating. And I totally agree with that. Um, you've more or less passed the torch of responsibility from the coach to yourself. Yeah. And so Which you now have the freedom <laughs> to say, I need to improve this this week or prepare for this for the next two weeks. And you do it and you're more or less fine tuning yourself. Yeah. Which I think an athlete, like the really top athletes do it, even if they have a coach, I yeah. think it's, it's hard to do, especially as a younger athlete, because you spent your whole life being told what to do um, by people who know a lot more than you. But I think as you get older and I think the really great athletes do this, you, you learn to kind of, like you said, fine tune yourself. And, you know, you always hear coaches say, you know, you know, your body better than anyone else. And I'm not sure I actually really believe that until all of a sudden I didn't have a coach at all and just had to um, just listen to how I was feeling and kind of think more critically about kind of what, what I needed to improve, not necessarily what kind of everyone else around me was doing. Yeah. Um, that's a dangerous thing to do when you don't have some experience, a trial and error, as well as knowledge built up. Really? But I would say my, in my full-time skiing career, that's when I really improved this when I said, okay, next year's an Olympic year. It was the spring of the year before the Olympic year. And I tried some things. And then all summer and fall, I said, if I'm not going to, if I'm not going to make that Olympic team, it's going to be up to me. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be, able, I'm not going to point at my coach and say, you know, you should have done this. You shouldn't. Have. I'm going to take the responsibility either way. And I improved tremendously and achieved my goals and so on. And, and I think that was a critical decision for me to have made at that point in my career. But if I had done that earlier in my career, it would have been a mess, I, I think. Right. Yeah, exactly. So oh, cool. Um, in terms of prioritizing, maybe like you mentioned three, some kind of quality workouts a week at, what about the balance? I've found, especially as a master blaster, I've found for me, for my enjoyment and, you know, being in love with skiing, I also need to entertain the balance between having fun as a skier and doing the gerbil trail thing. I call it the gerbil trail thing. So, you know, there are a lot of gerbil trails around here as well as uh, in Bozeman area, like Lindley Park and so on. Um, the trade-off between going out into one of the canyons or passes and just doing this wilderness distance ski that's more of an adventure. You don't know if a moose is going to pop out or, you know, <laughs> sunsets and all the cool stuff as compared to going around and doing little teeny circles. And after a while, you kind of think, you know, this isn't really skiing. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I think one thing that I've, I've loved about um, having a bit more flexibility in training is there were a lot of workouts and adventures and things I didn't do when I was racing full time. Um, because it didn't make sense because there, you know, the risk for injury or the risk for kind of doing too much or overtraining was, was too high. Um, like I remember friends going on these big adventure runs or big bikes that, you know, you may be out in the mountain for seven hours and, and as a skier, it just didn't make sense to do that every weekend. So I think I've loved just kind of giving myself more permission to do that. Um, like a few weeks ago, we did this really cool 90 mile, like point to point run, which the whole time I was up there, I was like, I would have never done this if I was, like just racing full time because, you know, you have kind of all your eggs in one basket and, and the risk of them breaking is too high. But that I think has been 
really fun for me, especially from a mental aspect. So when you talk about like the balance, like I, I think I'm just a much happier, more relaxed skier person, athlete when I'm able to do those adventures. And so when I talk about like three quality workout, it's, it's like, you know, I might have, you know, two interval sessions. I I really want to get in, in a week and, and I'll make the time to do those. Like I'm thinking of yesterday or two days ago, I did roller ski intervals just by myself up this hill after work. And it's not that fun at the end of a work day to go out there and do it yourself. But um, I'll pick like two, two days to like really do those and maybe one speed day. And then the rest of it is just finding people to go adventure with. So this morning we, we did this bike loop and then I finished by going to um, Wild Chrome, which is my favorite bakery <laughs> and getting a big old croissant. But that was just a fun chill. I wasn't, you know, paying attention to my heart rate or anything. It was just like an early morning sunrise bike. And so I think, you know, that balance has been a good fit for me having, you know, a couple of focus workouts, then the rest prioritizing kind of the people and places that I get to do them in and with. Right. And from what I, what you said earlier, the closer you get to the ski season, the more sensitive you are to making sure that you're specific. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I've done work. I consider myself to be a person who actively loves the outdoors and I spend tons of time in the outdoors and in the mountains and so on. And, you know, there's that balance with I'll do a workout and I'll, I'll do a short warm up, short warm down and my workout might be intervals or, you know, some kind of repeats. And I've covered like two K's total. Yeah. You know, yep. <laughs> total, <laughs> uh, you know, going back to 2K in terms of the distance I've gone back and forth on. And, you know, it, I don't really feel like I'm an outdoorsman. You know what I'm doing? Yeah. We have a canyon up around the corner here, not very far, called Daniel's Summit. And yeah. there's a 50K loop. It's a snowmobile trail at the, at the, the state and a, a snowmobile place grooms. It's perfect corduroy. And there's generally no one out there. So it's basically just 50Ks of corduroy without classic tracks so you just go ski it and it's a huge got a huge climb it goes up on this ridge and you've got mountains on both sides and there's all sorts of wildlife and you're the only person out there all the time and i've learned as much as i love doing that this is before i had the tenon problems that have been plaguing me for 12 years when i did it i actually got slower it was i fell in love with skiing again but it wasn't good for my results because it was just too much too hard for getting a little older and working so much and I couldn't handle the hard stuff, the quality workouts plus that. And so I had to give that up and say, okay, I'll do it three times a year and I'll just love it, you know? So there's definitely a trade-off when you hit that between entertaining your love of the outdoors and actually being an outdoorsman and results, but at the same time, enjoyment. I mean, that's really what it's about too. So I'm yeah. sure you're, you're, uh, you're balancing that too. Yeah. You know, I think you're right. It, it's, it's always a balancing act. I think just what I've enjoyed is, is in general, I think I lean more towards the thing that's going to make me happier. And I've found that in general, like that's what's going to allow me to be fast. And it doesn't mean like, but, but like intervals also make me really happy. Like it feels so good to just go hammer out a workout and breathe really hard and be like completely exhausted at then, but your legs are kind of like tingly and feel good. So it's, it's finding time for both of those, but giving yourself the freedom to, you know, maybe you're planning intervals and all of a sudden some of your friends are going out to do this really cool loop and you have been wanting to do it all summer. Like, I love being able to be like, you know what, I'll just do intervals the next day and I'm going to go do this today. And I think that for me, I've, I've really enjoyed. You said intervals make me really happy. I think <laughs> of, of the people that do what we do, half the people were like, what? And the other half were like, exactly. 
I'm in the exact category with you. I was doing skier the other day and skier hurts. It's hard, you know, it's really? very intense. I don't, I don't do easy skier. I, I go, I go bananas and then I'm done, you know? Yep. And I was just dying on the vine. It's super hot and blah, blah, blah. And I was thinking, I am so freaking glad to be doing this. Like I was loving every second of it as, as hard as it was. And I don't know, there's still, I have a need to go hard. I yeah. love it. Yeah. It's interesting that you said that. Yeah. I mean, I just, I talked about this already, but it's such a, to be able to breathe hard like that is like such a gift. Like I just think there's so many people who can't do that for a number of reasons, some in their control, some not. And, and so I think I just am so appreciative of of being able to out there and and breathe hard in that feeling of your lungs. Just like, I I don't know. I, I feel like it's so lucky and it could end tomorrow. And I think that makes me even more appreciative of it. It makes me feel alive. Yeah. Like yeah. truly alive, like vibrant and alive. I, I, I absolutely understand what you're saying. Yeah. So great. Um, you've, like I said earlier, you've had some of the best coaching and teammates and been in some of the best programs our country has to offer. It seems to me that your technique has improved these last two years <laughs> since you've been on your own. Is this similar yeah. to you taking the reins of your 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 training plan and reacting and fine-tuning stuff are you paying more attention to your technique now that's a good question um so yes I think part of it is that like recognizing that I don't have a coach I don't have someone watching me if I want to get better like that's on me um and just kind of having my eyes open a little bit more to you know, if I'm skiing behind someone and, and getting dropped by them or, or you know they're accelerating in front of me you know what is it that they're doing that is allowing them to do that and be more efficient. I think I also realized because I don't have the luxury of, of training as much as I did when it was full time, like I have to have better technique because I can't just rely on, on raw, pure raw fitness. Like that's the benefit that I have being a bit older skier is, is yes, I have years of training behind me, but it's more that I have that experience from like a, a technical standpoint. And as you mentioned, great coaches. So you know, it's not like anything any one coach is saying is, is rocket science, but it's it's actually being thoughtful about what they're saying and figuring out how it applies to you and what you're doing. Um, and then I also think, honestly, like I would be remiss not to say that Andy hasn't helped. Like he's technically a very good skier, has a really good eye. Um, I think he's better when he's not coaching me. Um, <laughs> as I imagine most people who are in a relationship would say, I'm always like, tell me what I need to do better. And, you know, I think he's hesitant to give that kind of feedback, but, but he knows what he's talking about. And he watches a lot of ski video. He he gives, he watches a lot of different athletes. He obviously has Nordic team solutions. And I think um, that's been helpful too. And if he's someone who's just completely obsessed with the sport from, from a technical standpoint, in a way I, I never have been, but I've learned a lot from him through that in the way that he's, he's always thinking about how to make it better. Like not just happy with teaching kind of what the status quo is, but it's, it's okay. This is the best way to do this now, but what can we be doing differently to, to make it even better? And so I think that's been, been helpful as well. Yeah, I'm sure. This isn't something that I thought that we were going to talk about, but if I consider you as a ski racer, as an observer, you know, I've been around watching every, most of the big races you've done, I wouldn't have, let's say 10 or 15 years ago, I wouldn't have thought Erica Flowers is super savvy. Erica is going to, you, you know, you make it through the rounds and sprint races and you, you, you know, obviously did really well. But now I would say 
you're probably one of the most savviest racers in the entire circuit. And it seems like perhaps this, what we've talked about, you know, your ability to think for yourself and giving yourself permission to, to truly take responsibility for it all and maybe, maybe be creative in your mind. I, like I'm sure you're the most savvy racer in any pack that you're in and any sprint you're in and any mass start you're in. I mean, I, it's like a guarantee you're in there. And even with worse fitness, perhaps, I'm not saying you are less fit, but even with, <laughs> I've been in a situation where I've been less fit and I've known I was going to win. Yeah. I think you're in that category now. And that's something that it's a, it's a skill. It's an ability that you develop. What do you think about that? I, I mean, I think you're right. And it's funny, like, especially in the context of sprinting, like I grew up having numerous coaches tell me I was not a sprinter, not a sprinter. Um, I was never going to be a sprinter. Um, and so for me, that's been kind of fun to, to chase that. Cause now I, I, I do feel competitive in, in any sprint I enter and that's, that's pretty fun. Um, but I think I attribute some of that to the athletes that I've had the privilege of training with. Um, Sophie, Jesse, obviously great sprinters, Annie Hart, a, a number that I've, Julia Kern, you know, so learned a ton from them just in, in their confidence and, and, and tactics and, and sprinting and, and racing in general. Um, but I think a lot of it, you're right, is just having that. It is, it's like, it's a confidence thing and it's just putting yourself out there and being like, no, I, I belong here. And, and it might not work out every time, but, but if you don't put yourself in the position to win, you never will. So I think that's something that, that I picked up from them. And there's a, a specific sprint workout that comes to mind that I did on roller skis with the Stratton team maybe my third year racing, third or fourth year. And it was before, um, I think the Olympics in Sochi. And uh, Pat O'Brien gave me roller skis that had uh, a zero wheel and a six wheel. And typically everyone was on sixes on both fronts. So they were slightly faster. I didn't know it. Um, and that day I, I finished kind of the heats and the rounds and I was right behind Sophie. And I was like, wow, like I can, I'm sprinting. Like what is happening? And it was like, obviously I had faster skis that day, but it was from that day forward. I was like, they're not going that much faster than I am. Like, it's not like they're that much better. It's, it's a difference of, you know, maybe a half second here or there, but they're confident to leave. They're confident to go to the front. They're confident to, to, to try and make their way up to the kind of front of the line and, and finish first. And so I think that's something that I kind of, after that tried to adopt more and, and just be more confident in and, and recognize that that's a big piece of it is not necessarily, Oh, your fitness or your skills or your speed or whatever, but um, kind of being willing to, to risk it, if you will. For sure. On, on, the, on that note, I think part of the challenge when you go to either sprint or master, but part of the challenge is you have to have enough confidence to be able to ask yourself and answer the question, how am I going to get to the finish line first? If, mm -hmm. if you don't think you're in the mix, your game plan is pretty much, I'm just going to try to stay with the lead pack as long as I can. That's my game plan, you know? Right. And then what happens if you stayed with the lead pack to a point where you actually were competitive and you could have won, but you, you weren't giving yourself permission. You have the confidence to say, how am I going to win this race? Whereas if you have enough confidence, you can say, okay, during the race, as it unfolds, even if not before, I'm going to look at my ski speed, my, how my strength and weaknesses compare with everyone else. And where am I going to make my move? Or am I going to wait until the sprint or, but you know, you actually have a plan that's logical that is based on, on what you're seeing and you can react to 
to actually get to the finish line first. If you don't have the confidence, you don't even have that conversation with yourself. Right, right? exactly. And you're and definitely think, doing that now. Yeah, and it, I think it's the difference between being being scared of racing and, and having fun with it. Yeah. And, and recognizing that if you win, that's awesome. If you get 10th, maybe it's not the result you wanted, but five years from now, you won't remember it. So like, you might as well have fun trying to win. And, and even if you fall short, like, I think it's, it's fun to get in a race and, you know, there's, there's all these kind of different games and strategies and tactics you can play. And I think that's a really fun part of skiing, but I think it's also, I think when I was younger and, and earlier, it was very scary because you don't want to fail. Like no one wants to fail. Um, but I think once you take that pressure off and are like, you know, I'm going to have good days, I'm going to have bad days, but I'm always going to have fun and like, try my darndest to be at the front like you end up you know having more shots on goal basically that's awesome so let me ask you um what your favorite toko glove model is and why i like asking this i design the gloves and i get a lot of different answers and i learn from them that's a good question so um if i had to pick a favorite honestly it's the the little lobster <laughs> <laughs> um over mitt or the split finger no like split thermal, finger is it the thermal split mitts i guess probably yep thermal split mitts um which i know is funny but honestly i i race i don't race in them but i ski in them 95 percent of the time like with the exception of racing that's what i'm in and i think it's they're like the warmest gloves out there i think i recommended them to to almost everyone i know um and I get really cold hands, so I, I don't have great circulation. I know a lot of skiers don't. Um, and those are just, they're comfortable. They're a good mitt. They have good nose wipes for when your nose is running. And, and they keep my hands warm. And at the end of the day, like, honestly, all I want in a glove is something that's warm and comfortable. And I think that that glove hits both of those. And then in terms of racing, it's the, the thermo one, the five-finger thermo. It's like a warmer racing glove. And I think that similarly goes back to the fact that I have um, – colder hands but for me they're they're plenty warm but not um too bulky so i feel like i have more control over my my pulls and and they're not getting in the way they're just and i guess that's the other thing is like you never want a glove to be holding you back you just want it to be helping you helping you win helping you go as fast as you can and so i think that's what i love about those is they keep my hands plenty warm like i'm never shaking my hands out in a race because it's it's too thin um but they're not getting in the way they're just they're seamless with my pulls and and just able to race quickly with them. So we have a thermal race model, which has got no palm insulation. And we have a thermal plus, which is a little thicker in the back of the hand. It's, uh, it's a soft shell with palm insulation. Which one is, are you talking about? Thermal plus, the warm one. <laughs> okay. yeah, that's been actually, yeah. this year anyway, in these, in these questions, it's been quite a popular model. Yeah, I love them. Yeah, thanks. So um, a couple of personal questions. Okay. So what's something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out? Well, I, I mean, I sang acapella for four years in, in college. So um, I think I, I mentioned I, I was really into musical theater as a child. I was like, I was going to go on to Broadway. That was my, like mission in life. That changed once I discovered skiing, but I still really enjoy music and, and singing. And I haven't done a lot of it in the last few years, um, but I did sing in like, you know, I'm sure everyone's seen Pitch Perfect. And honestly, college acapella is not that much different than that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah wow and do you continue to do that now is there a a group in Bozeman you've joined I you know I don't um what I would love to do is be able to play live music a little bit more I don't know just at like 
bars or coffee shops or whatever. I know Andy plays guitar, so I'm like, oh, maybe one day, like, we can actually learn a song together and perform it. I think both of us are, you know, it's prioritizing different things at the moment. So haven't really been practicing and definitely very rusty and, and would probably be quite nervous to do that right now at this point in my life. But I, I still, I still love singing. And right now it's kind of limited to my car and my shower. But uh-huh. Cool. Uh, last question. Do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words? Yeah. So I think it's funny, like a few years ago, I think I started saying just up and up, like always on the up and up. And I think, I think that's true. Like, I think, you know, there's good days, there are bad days, but it's like, you can always look forward and always look up. It's, it's so much easier to get stuck in the, the yesterday or kind of the, whatever just happened, you know, a few minutes ago, um, whether it was good or bad, but um, I've found that at least for me, like, kind of way to remind myself to move forward is like you learn the most honestly from from the days that don't go well um so taking those but then kind of looking up and kind of up and up and just you know there's always there's good things ahead no matter what stage of life or skiing or racing you're in um if you can kind of keep that in mind and and it's a choice right like yeah. like life is hard sometimes but and you can kind of choose to dwell on that stuff or, or choose to you know, recognize and appreciate all the, the good things and the stuff that's that's ahead and around you. And so I think that's kind of what, what I think about often. I love that. Yeah. I, I'm of the opinion that quality of life has to do with enjoying your life. And, yeah. and for the most part, I think that's a decision. There are people that are very happy that have, have, that have a lot of affliction and hardship in their lives. And there are people that are really unhappy that seem to have very easy, comfortable lives. And right. And uh, I think we're all interested in being happy. And I think that's really, you know, having an outlook and attitude or perspective that, that you just described is super empowering and it yields a high quality of life, meaning a happy life. So I love that. That's great. Yeah, I tried to. And that's not this to say that I don't have bad days either, but that's when you, you pull in friends and your support network and community and, and they remind you that, hey, this, this isn't so bad. <laughs> you have a lot of good things going on too. So just choosing to to focus on those. Super. Erica, especially through this interview, it's, it's uh, apparent, but I've seen this when I've observed you, especially the last couple of years. It seems to me you're absolutely thriving. You're on top of your game as a person. You know, you're, you're in your element, as they say, you know, like, I, I think you're absolutely thriving and I love to see that. Um, and I hope that that comes through in this interview because I wasn't expecting this exactly. Um, but it seems to me that's the theme of this interview and that what I would take with it if I were to uh, just listen to this podcast would be um, maybe what it's like to be thriving, what it sounds like, and also many of the things you've touched on, I think have yielded you thriving, taking, taking control of your life and taking responsibility for things and allowing yourself to enjoy things and not put pressure on yourself, um, doing everything on your own terms, basically. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think it's fair to say. And and I guess I'll put in the caveat that um, like it's not always that way. Like I don't want people to think I'm like always happy, always great. But I think in some ways like good begets good and that like I've noticed this 
it's so easy to get into negative cycles of things, but I think it's, it's just as easy to get into positive cycles. And yeah. I think it just, it just, it, you know, it, it takes some effort certainly. And it's not like all of a sudden you have a bad day and you're like, Oh, I've broken the cycle. But I think it's, it's kind of choosing to, to go through life in that way and kind of recognize, you know, there's a lot of good things going on here and I'm going to keep putting good out. And, you know, I've found anyways that, that kind of good kind of comes back in and, and that's nice. It's great. It's a great feeling. And, and to be able to kind of just keep building on that. I completely agree with that. And once again, that's near and dear to my heart. I, I use Google calendar a lot. Mm -hmm. One of the things, one of many things I use Google calendar for is to remind myself of things now and then. And once a week through Google calendar, an email arrives in my inbox and mm -hmm. it says to me, the world gives back what you put out. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. what you're putting out is what people are going to give back to you. And, and you clearly have that when you travel, for example. Two people yeah. go to the same place. One person is a jerk, and everyone treats that person like a jerk because they're treating them like jerk. Another person's super nice and friendly and open-minded, and they're getting the same back. And they come back, and one person's like, oh, that place sucked. The other person's like, it was awesome. Yeah. And I think the, the, the main difference in the experience is what they were putting out was to determine what they were getting back. And that's not, that's got nothing to do with travel. It's just an easy way of um, illustrating it. I think that's life in general. And you, I, th I think it's not a coincidence that you have good life experiences and a lot of good friends and positive energy because you're putting it out. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. And it's, yeah, it's, it's been a fun year. I'm excited to see what this next year brings. I know it's been weird for a lot of people. I mean, for example, we all use Zoom now. <laughs> Yeah. but hopefully there'll still be some some races to be had and if not lots of kind of winter adventures so yeah well we're in the same quadrant of the united states so maybe i'll see you around now and then this winter i hope I so. hope so yeah i'm i'm hopeful we just had our first snow on monday and i i'm ready for the snow to start flying i'm ready for ski season so so am i i was grinning ear to ear I, i'm yeah. ready for cold for skiing for winter <laughs> me too okay well it's been my pleasure doing this interview with you and yeah, uh, hopefully too. others um, get a lot of value out of this, not just entertainment, but value, because I have too. Yeah, so no, I, it's been my pleasure. So thank you so much. And yeah, thanks to, to Toko for being a, a supporter of myself and, and other athletes in the U.S. as well. You guys do a great job. So thanks. Thank you. Okay. Yeah.